Well, I thought that was a great song last week, but I wasn't convinced about the bridge. But thank you for rescuing the bridge there. Thank you for that. Well, good morning. My name is Paul Rees. I'm the lead pastor here at Charlotte Chapel, and it's great to have you here with us. Why don't you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1? And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can reach out for one of these red pew Bibles, and you'll find it on page uh, 1173. 1173. Ephesians chapter 1. We're just working through this book of Ephesians right now. I'm going to read from verses 15, verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Let's just pray. Oh, Father, please now, by your Spirit, Give us wisdom and knowledge of you as we read your holy word. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, please keep your Bibles open. We're going to be examining these verses for the next uh, 30 minutes together. To start a little quiz... Uh, can you guess which movie this quote comes from? There's going to be three movies. Can you guess which is the movie? And what is it that connects these movies? All right? Number one. Luke, I am your father. It's very difficult. Very difficult. Got to be on your toes this morning. Number two. You're a wizard, Harry. All right? It's very difficult. Number three, a bit trickier this one. I can tell you the, the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 250 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab or the great truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for half a mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? 
Well, the three things that link these three movies is that the hero does not know his true identity. Uh, Number one, Luke Skywalker, Star Wars. Number two, Harry Potter from the first movie. Number three, Jason Bourne from The Bourne Identity. That's the thing that links all these three characters. They don't know who they really are. It is quite disturbing. It is uh, something that produces anxiety and tension when we don't know our true identity. And it seems to me that this is one of Paul's great concerns as he writes this letter to this church in Ephesus, that they really understand who they are in Christ. It would seem to me that many of the problems that we have as Christians, many of the problems that we uh, struggle with as a church is because we do not know who we are in Christ. That's the the heart of our problem. We have identity amnesia. I spoke last week of a a lecturer that I had uh, at one of the colleges that I attended who from time to time would not turn up to lectures. And it was because this poor fellow suffered from amnesia. Uh, He would kind of go out to the shops and forget who he was. For days, and I've even read cases of people being like this for months, but for him it was for days. So imagine how tragic that is. He'd got a lovely home, but for those days he lived as if he was homeless on the street. He'd got a loving wife, but for those days it must have seemed to him as if he was unloved, as if he was in an, in an indifferent world. Uh, he'd got Uh, a great job and he'd worked hard and studied hard to be able to have this lecturer's job but for those days he was not fulfilling the purpose for which he'd worked so hard it's a tragic thing when we forget who we are I could think of so many instances of this let me just give you a couple of situations I've had people over the years come and speak to me with great anxiety and with great fear that um, evil spiritual forces might be harmfully impacting them as Christians. I can think of one uh, young mama, actually a pregnant lady, who was quite concerned that the words that people spoke around her were cursing her and cursing her child. She was quite anxious that they were being cursed. I had another gentleman who was seeing flashing lights and was quite convinced that he was seeing quite evil, demonic visions in front of him. And he came to me because he was quite anxious as a Christian that maybe these evil spirits might be able to take control of him and make him do things that he didn't want to do. And we think like that because we have identity amnesia. So let's see, what does the Bible have to say? So have a look at Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Basically, this chapter, uh, after the introduction, is two long sentences in the original language of Greek. Isn't that amazing? A lot of, lot of words, but there's basically two long sentences. And there's two halves to this chapter. It, it, it begins with praise, 
and then it moves on to prayer. He, he praises God the Father, and then he prays to God the Father. And uh, do you remember last week we looked at the essence of that praise? Do you remember what it was? Uh, the headline is there in verse 3. Have a look. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's praising God that in Christ they have every spiritual blessing. Everyone. And do you remember who the us included? Remember what we looked at last week? Essentially, it's anyone who has heard the gospel and believed the gospel, they are included in Christ. For so, somebody in Christ, this is what is true of them in Christ, they are blessed. They are chosen, chosen to be holy and blameless. Um, they have been chosen to be adopted into God's family. They have... Um, been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They've been forgiven of all their sins. Uh, they are informed of the future in Christ. They know what's going to happen. They are significant in Christ. Because when you're in Christ, you're at the very center of God's purposes for the whole of human history. That's true of someone in Christ. And he just praises God that that is the case. And as he addresses the church at Ephesus, he is quite sure that they are included in this. There are two definite evidences of it that causes him to thank God every time he remembers them. They're right there in verse 15. Do you see them? What are the two evidences? What's the first one? Your faith. Your faith in the Lord Jesus. And the second one? Your love for all the saints. Two definite proofs that these Christians in Ephesus, even though most of them were not Jewish but Gentile Christians, that they were the real deal, that they were included in Christ, that they were part of God's family, that they, that they had faith in the Lord Jesus, and that they loved all the saints. Evidence that you're the real deal. So Paul moves from praise to God the Father to prayer. And that's what's in verses 15 to 23. The thanksgiving he begins with. But what is it that he prays for these real Christians? Well, the heart of it is right there in verse 17. Have another look at verse 17. What's the essence of this prayer? Have a little look. I'm actually getting you to think. It is a shocking moment, I know. Getting you to work. There's a lot of words there, but what's the essence of that prayer? That you would know. It's a prayer for knowledge, isn't it? This is a prayer that these real Christians would really know. Know him better. So there's a lot of words here, but that's the essence of this prayer. He praises God uh, for all these things, and then he prays, Lord, help them to know this. Help them to get this. Now, there's all different types of knowledge, isn't there? I mean, we can know facts about people, and then we can actually really know people personally, can't we? So I could go on the internet, and I could know lots of facts about Zara Phillips and Mike Tyndale, but I still would not know them personally, which would explain why I wasn't invited yesterday. 
Anyone invited? So you don't know them personally either, okay? I was wondering whether we'd see a few of the royals today, but they might be somewhere else. Probably, the queen will be somewhere else probably today. So what sort of knowledge is Paul praying for in verse 17? Have a look. I keep asking that the God of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. It's a personal knowledge, isn't it? That you may know him better. He, he prays to God that God, by his spirit, would just give them this wisdom, this revelation, so that they would know him better. It is an amazing thing that when we're in Christ, we have the privilege of a personal knowledge of God. That we know him as the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know him as the glorious Father. The one who made this incredible cosmos, uh, the one who uh, made us, the Father of glory, the glorious Father, we can know him. In fact, that's, that's the very reason that he's praising God at the outset. Do you notice that the focus is God the Father? Do you see that? Sometimes we, we forget this. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, uh, who has blessed us. It is the Father who has blessed us in Christ. It is the Father who has uh, so loved us that he predestined us to be adopted as his, as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. This is the, fa- the Father has done all this work that we might know him personally. The glorious Father. Fantastic. Amazing. But it's more than that. This knowledge is more than just personal knowledge. It is experiential knowledge. So actually, I can know facts about a person. I actually can know a person. But the, the next real deep experience of knowledge is when I trust them. I depend upon them. You know, we have relationships with people, but not everyone that we meet and we know personally, we would trust. Isn't that true? You've got a few people that you're so very polite with, and you know, in the head you're thinking, would never trust you in a million days, right? Oh, yeah, lovely to see you. Yeah, wouldn't trust you, right? You may have one or two people like that. Well, this is, this is, this is the deep knowledge that Paul is praying for, isn't it? This is what he wants them to really get. Now look at, you can see that in verse, verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. See the contrast here? There is like a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. There is a way of seeing with the eyes of our, of our head and there is a way of seeing with the eyes of our heart. And he is praying that they will uh, know things being enlightened in their hearts. Now, when we think of hearts today, you know, Valentine's Day, big, you know, we think about love, we think about emotions, we think about feelings, right? That's what we think about, isn't it? Now, in biblical thought... Uh, that is also true. The heart is the place of feeling and emotion, but it's more than that. In biblical thought, the heart is the place of thinking and also the place of making decisions as well as our affections. In biblical thought, when you talk about the heart, you're almost saying the whole of you. And so Paul is praying that God would, by his spirit of wisdom and revelation, would... uh, Open the eyes of their 
heart that they would really know God in a way that was more than facts, more than personal knowledge, but that they would trust him, that they would believe it and that they would live it. That's what he's praying for, isn't it? He is praying that they would really get it. Um, there's other religions and philosophies that talk about enlightenment, which involves sort of doing things with your hands and breathing deeply and all sorts of strange things. And uh, you can go to the shops and they'll show you how you can open various mystical eyes and reach enlightenment. Now, what's Christian enlightenment? What's Christian enlightenment? Well, here it is. Christian enlightenment is this, to get, to get it, that you've got it in Christ. This is Christian enlightenment, that you get it, that you've got it in Christ. And that's what Paul is praying will happen to these, uh, these Christians in Ephesus. Oh, praise you, Father, you've done all these amazing things for them in Christ. Lord, please help them to get it that they've got it. That's what he's praying. Pray that he gets it, that they've got it. They don't live with amnesia. Now, do you notice that there are three things specifically here that he prays that they will know about God? They're there in verse 18 and 19. Three things that he prays that they'll know about God. And the three things are this, that they will know the hope of his calling, that they will know the glory of his inheritance, and thirdly, that they would know the greatness of his power. That's three things that specifically he prays for them, that they would know about God. So let's just spend a little bit of time thinking about these three things and think about, okay, have we got it? Have we got this? Number one, the hope of his calling. That's in verse 18, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, next week, we're going to get to a chapter 2, and we're going to see that Paul can say that there was a time in the lives of these people in the church when they were without hope and without God. And if you've been a Christian for many years, you kind of forget what life looks like without God. Here's the summary of the Apostle Paul. Uh, without God, without hope. And I, I, I just say, look out into the culture. Look out into the world that is there, and I think you'll see ample evidence of this. You'll see a lot of people trying to cheerfully whistle in the darkness. Trying to stay cheerful and optimistic based on this view of the world. That this universe happened out of some random chance moment. It all came out of nothing, goodness knows why. And the reason that we're here today is, well, it's just a, some random thing that took place. That there is no purpose, there is no point, there is uh, nothing that deals with the problem of guilt that we feel, nothing that can really uh, deal with the mess-ups of our lives. That is it. It is a world of suffering and pain and suck it up because that's the way it is and that's it. That's the world for many people. And they whistle in the darkness and watch the latest show, you know, or X Factor to amuse themselves so they forget that that is the case. 
But think about the hope of his calling upon our lives. See, what does the Christian know? The Christian knows that the, that the world belongs to God. And that I belong to him. We know that this world has a plan and a purpose. That God called us in Christ through the gospel. That God actually had a plan even before he made the whole thing about how this whole thing was going to play out. And it included including us in Christ. That there is a purpose. Even in the dark valley of suffering, that there is a purpose. That there is pardon for our sin. There is a way that the mess-ups of our past can be redeemed. And that there is power to live changed lives. That is the hope of our calling. Isn't that amazing? Do we get it? Do we get that? What would it look like to see a church and to see people that really got that? Well... Surely it would look something like this, that even in the darkest times, you'd see a people who had hope. People who had faith for the future. Who had a a confidence, even though it may look bleak and dark right now, they know who they belong to, they know where things are going, and that there is a deep-seated hope. Second thing, what does he pray that they would know? Say in verse 18, that they would know the glory of his inheritance. Do you see that? That they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when you read that quickly, you could sort of jump and think, well, actually, yeah, I know what this is about. This is saying how the believer in Christ has, uh, has a glorious inheritance in the future. Uh, all the wonderful you know, wealth of salvation, all the benefits of the new heavens and the new earth that will be uh, his or hers, that it's talking about uh, the believer's inheritance. But look again. Whose inheritance is it talking about? That they may know the riches of his. Who's his? Who's his? We're talking about God the Father, aren't we? We're talking about God the Father. The the glorious inheritance that he has in the saints. Now I have to say, this is kind of mind-blowing to me. Do you know that when he looks at you as a believer in Christ, when he looks at us as a church, God is saying, wow, they're mine. They're mine. They're my possession. They're part of my family. They're my glory. Well, you go, hang on. I don't look at my life and I don't look at this church. I mean, obviously it's glorious in lots of ways, but in some ways it's not as that glorious, right? Really? Does God see that? Yes. Now, how can God see that? Well, because God sees us in Christ. God sees us in our perfected state in Christ. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30, doesn't he? Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And he speaks of it in this past tense because it's inevitable. This is what God does. And God sees us as believers and us as a church in our perfected glory on that last day in Christ. 
fully reflecting his glory. I think we get a little taste of this when we bump into grandparents. I don't know about you, but my experience of bumping into grandparents is it doesn't take long for them to uh, edge towards the pictures of their grandchildren, right? And they will tell you about their grandchildren in glorious terms, right? Um, This is something that parents can't fully do because they see all the other problems. The glory of a grandparent is the grandparent has the kids back when they're difficult, you know? Over to you now. That's the glory of being a grandparent, isn't it? And they just see the good points. And this is, this is just a dim reflection of how God sees us in Christ, in our perfected form. That we are his glorious inheritance. Now, we do, do we get that? That's my question. Do we get that? What would it look like if we really got that? Would we not have great assurance of the love of God? That we are cherished? That we are prized? Now I find this sometimes very hard to believe for myself. Because I'm more aware of my sin than of what I will be in Christ, perfected in glory. But actually, this is how God sees us. And if we really got this, we would walk around with just great confidence and assurance of his love, would we not? If we really got this. Third thing that he wants them to get, the third thing he wants them to know about God, what is it? It's in verse 19. His great power. His great power. And it's like Paul piles words on words here. Um, He doesn't just talk about his great power, God the Father's great power. He talks about his incomparably great power. I don't know what you can think of as something powerful. I actually began to work out how many megatons of energy the sun produced every second. And to be honest, even putting that stat down was just uh, too mind-blowing. Uh, and he made the sun. But Paul does not point to the cosmos to show the incomparably great power of God. He could have, but he doesn't. Where does he point? He points to Christ, doesn't he? What's that power like, Paul? Well, there, look, look in verse 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ. What are the two great enemies that we have? Two great enemies that we have. I would suggest these. One is death. We are mortal and we cannot do anything about death. Secondly, evil. We are fallen. And we can't ultimately do anything about evil. But look at the power of God that he exerted in Christ Verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Death is conquered. More than that, when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. Can you think of any power or authority above that? Has he covered everything? I think he pretty much covered everything, hasn't he? Uh, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every title that can be given, 
Well, what about the future, Paul? Got it covered. Not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. This is the authority of Christ over all things. And just to really get the point home, verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet. I mentioned on vacation, went to the British Museum, and uh, you can see uh, lots of ancient bits of rubble with fantastic uh, uh, engravings and writings on it, and there's lots of scenes of ancient kings who have won the victory. And, and you know what? They, they, they have pictures of the, uh, the kings of other nations lying prostrate on the floor, and the, the king who's in command is stepping on their neck like that. You know, they're utterly defeated, totally in control. Well, God placed all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. And he made him head over everything in the universe. For what? For what reason? This is incredible. Verse 22, last three words. For the who? Church. For the church. God raised Christ. He seated Christ. He, he gave him the name that was above every name. Put all enemies under his feet. Made him head of all things. For what? For the church. Which is his body. Well, what would it look like if we really got that? What would it look like if we really got that fact? Just think practically about my uh, two friends I mentioned earlier. This lady concerned that the words of others would curse her and curse her child. What has she forgotten? That all enemies are under the feet of Christ. No spiritual forces of darkness are higher than him. And he's there for the church. Uh, no power can curse what God has blessed. I mean, this is the fact that often gets obscured in the story of Balaam. We often uh, consider the rather talkative means of transport, don't we, when it comes to Balaam? The donkey. But what's the point of that passage? The point of the passage is that Balak, king of Moab, decides that he's had enough of these uh, uh, Israelites coming through and destroying uh, nations as they head to the promised land. And he, he hires Balaam to put a curse on them. And God's people had no idea about this. They were oblivious, getting on doing their, whatever they do down in, as they wander in the wilderness, taking care of their herds and everything. And up on this mountaintop is the king of Moab, and he's got uh, Balaam, and he says, now, go on, I've given you the money, curse them. And what does, what does Balaam do? Three times, he ends up blessing them. And he says to Balak, I cannot curse what God has blessed, right? And that's what this woman needs to remember. You cannot be cursed when God has said in Christ, blessed. Or think about this other friend who's concerned that this evil spirit's going to be able to take control of him in some way. Oh, he is the name that is above every name. Everything's under his feet. If we really got that, what would we look like? How would we live? 
Would it not be that we would live with great confidence? Confidence in the sovereignty of God over all things. Even the ups and downs, even in the bleak valleys, we know that Christ is head over all things and that God has incomparably great power for who? For us who believe. For us who believe. If we really got this, we trust him, wouldn't we? We trust him. And we'd be less freaked out by life. Don't you think? Don't you agree? We'd be less freaked out. See, what would Christ say to us today? He would say this, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Or we could think of the words of, that he spoke to John who saw that vision of the glorious resurrected Christ in Revelation. And uh, John sees the, uh, the glorified risen Christ and he falls like a dead man at his feet. And Jesus does this wonderful thing. He puts his hand on him and says, Do not be afraid. Is that a word for someone specifically today? Jesus put his hand on you and say, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see, what's the worst can happen when you die? Big deal when you know the one who's got the keys to death and Hades, right? Big deal. I hate My Lord is the one who has the keys to death and Hades. He can spring me out uh, and he will do when he... When the trumpet sound calls and all the dead in Christ will rise, he's, I'm out. I'm with him. Do we know the incomparably great power that God the Father has for those who believe? Do we get how great Christ is? Do we really get it that we've got it in Christ? Do we get that? Now, often um, as we pray, you know, we, we tend to sort of keep asking God to give us more stuff, don't we? Oh Lord, bless me in this, bless me in that, bless me like this. Now isn't it interesting, when Paul starts this, this section to Ephesians, he doesn't do that, does he? What has he done? He praises God, and he prays, Lord, help them to get that they are blessed. That they've got it. Help them to get deep here, that they've got it, so that they trust you. Do we always get it? I don't. Don't know about you. I don't. What do we need to do at those times? Well, pray for God's spirit of wisdom and revelation to open the eyes of our heart to know God the Father and realize all he's given us in Christ. That's what Paul is pointing us to here, isn't it? In panic and fear, what do you do? Pray, pray. Praise him. Pray to him. Because the problem is this, actually, we just haven't opened our eyes. Oh, Lord, it's really dark and scary. I'm really worried. I'm really frightened. We need to see him. We need to see him. Do you know, if you're today and you're going, do you know what? I am just cock-a-hoop about Jesus. I know I've got in Christ. I'm so excited. What, what can you do today? Well, I want you to start praying this for other people. Because that's what Paul does, doesn't he? He writes them and says, look, I'm praying this for you as a church. 
you remember last week I encouraged you to take a sticky note and, and write maybe one particular blessing that, was, that struck you to say, look, I am blessed in Christ, I am chosen in Christ, I'm loved in Christ, whatever. Well, I want you to, I hope you've still got that sticky note. I want you to look at it this week and every day. Thank God it's still true of you and then pray it for your fellowship group here at Shark Chapel. Pray it for us as a church. Would you pray it for the elders? Would you pray it for me? That we will get it that we've got it in Christ. Let's pray.